0: kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply to be attached to a world champion <laughs> so yeah. which you guys are with the texas rangers uh, before we get going about a ton of stuff let let me just take me through sort of the evolution of four rings and and also how it, it manifests itself in like in i guess the most recent example in terms of the rangers
1: sure i mean i I'll have to be a little guarded on what I could talk about as it regards to the Rangers or any client for that matter. But yeah, when I left the Mets, um, you know, prematurely from my perspective, not how how I wanted things to really end there. Um, I had an opportunity to think about what was next for me. Did talk to you know every year I talked to baseball teams about potentially going back, jumping back in full time. Um, but really, for the previous my last three four years at the Red Sox, I had been and getting an entrepreneurial itch and thinking about starting some sort of business on my own. Um, I didn't know what that would be. So the situation I was in after the Mets kind of forced me to think about that more. And th- I felt like, okay, what are the kind of, I had to think about what kind of things come up a lot for teams. And and the more I thought about it, it was just like, you know what, I, at my core I've always viewed myself as a problem solver and someone that's resourceful. So I decided to start a strategic consulting business for sports teams where I basically want to help general managers and other staff members with whatever they see as their biggest issue, their biggest challenge. You know, what are the things that keep them up at night? And any person I've ever known in a high level of baseball, there's always this kind of level of paranoia that they're missing something. <laughs> uh, so that's what I wanted to help with, right? It is Or where where are we weak? Where do we need to get better? How can we kind of improve these certain processes? And it's really about the processes under the hood. In baseball, I can help with the player pool if they want my thoughts on a trade or on a free agent. I can't do that in other sports. And I do work with other sports teams outside of baseball, uh, which is really actually very fun and interesting for me because it's a whole new World, And I always enjoyed when I worked in baseball talking to people from other teams because there was always something I'd learned that would get me thinking about how it could help teams that I worked for. Um, So, yeah, it's I I end up doing a variety of different things, get to meet a lot of interesting, good people that work for different teams and really just try to help them um, set themselves up for success. Right. I'm trying to help them build some sort of infrastructure if it's, you know, they think they need to be. You know, a lot of it because my background has been in analytics and building out analytics teams. It does tend to go there, especially in other sports that aren't as mature as baseball in that space. Um, You know, you talk to a hockey team and they'll say, we got all this player and puck tracking data. It's relatively new to that sport. You know, how can we get the most value out of this? How can we use this in our processes to make better decisions? So I'll work with them to help them set up. A process to handle the data have good people studying it i'm not going to do the analysis myself that's not what i'm doing i'm I'm more teaching them how to fish type of thing so yeah that's kind of the the basics of the business um and you know as far as working for baseball teams with the rangers you know that was probably about a year ago i started talking to chris young um you know he's not someone I, i i really knew and in fact that front office, wasn't a front office that I had a lot of connections to. I knew him from MLB, but only really when he did his kind of, you know, team visits and spring training type of thing It was just brief. Um, but we talked for a lot, a long time on several calls and, and we were really aligned on kind of our values and, and how, how he was seeing the organization organization that he wanted to build and run. And so, um, it was a good fit in that sense. And then it was just about, you know, helping him with the issues that he felt like he needed. And as someone that's been a, such a successful big leaguer, he's an incredibly humble person. Mm. And so for him, it was, you know, he had already brought in Dayton Moore to help him um, as an advisor. And for, with me, it was more about, hey, I've never been in this seat where I've had to make these decisions as the number one. Um, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly how to use all this information that we have in that process. So I need some help there. And he's got thoughts and ideas on how to do it, but he recognized that this may be an area that's where he could use some help. So that was essentially what I was brought in to do. It was a pretty uh, it was probably the biggest engagement I've done so far with the team. So I felt um, like a part of the team. I made several trips out there, one spring training and then several to, to Arlington and got to know a lot of the people there. I did a lot of Zooms with people there. It's a great group I got to be there for the draft prep, for trade deadline prep. Um, It was really, really fun. So, Especially the trade deadline was really enjoyable to kind of be in it. Be a buyer is always more fun than when you're selling. I mean, the act of selling can be fun because you're getting excited about the future, but the circumstances certainly aren't fun um so and to see and and see why having such an aggressive approach which is you know what i'm used to in most of my career coming up under theo who i think is a pretty aggressive guy um you know it's about championships so that was the mindset is how are we going to improve our chances to win a world championship and uh it was fun it was really fun to be be in the room for that
0: so i want to go back to what you said well the impetus for it right so when you're sitting there, you're thinking about you're getting that itch and you think there's something there, and then you want to start something. What did you feel was sort of the most underserved thing that the organizations would want to use your organization for? And maybe it's something you, what you said, Zach, which is just that that fear of you're missing something that maybe is right in front of you, or maybe you don't know about or it, 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 and i can totally get that right i mean right. You, you nobody thinks they know absolutely everything and they're also sure. para- a little bit paranoid about what they're not getting from right. somewhere else so was that yeah, and it,
1: sorry yeah it's a it's a closed industry too right so it's you only have 30 teams in your sport and or whatever it may be in different sports and you you don't have access in, inside those walls and you know part of the time you do get access by hiring people away from organizations you get a little sense of kind of what the differences are but yeah there's always this unknown that especially if you know you're either new or you've been doing it a long time you may think like are we uh, too insular do we not have an outside perspective so the big picture thing i was trying to offer is an outside perspective and of course yeah that's going to be limited somewhat to my experiences but one thing that i've always done is maintained a pretty large network and especially now that i'm not you know full-time with the team i'm not connected to a team in a way that a, a standard kind of full-time employee is people are more comfortable talking. I mean, more comfortable opening up and, you know, not giving away trade secrets, but just kind of using me as a sounding board, but I also learned something from them. Right. So, um, and, and I've learned stuff from other sports that are applicable to baseball. So it, yeah, it's, I set out to be honest. I, I wanted to start out with a kind of a more of a niche. And so I figured, okay, the analytics space is kind of where i've spent a much of my time even though i've had some oversight of pro scouting had oversight of player development with the mets um that's where kind of my my bread and butter was so and i honestly thought this is going to be much more marketable to non-baseball teams because baseball's so mature in that space i mean baseball's gone you know i, I don't want to be critical but it's just the number of people that work <laughs> on in this area for baseball teams is amazing to me it's astonishing and 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 probably unnecessarily so um because of getting larger can help you in some ways but also creates a lot of other issues and challenges that you have to deal with so uh there's trade offs there um but you know you look at baseball where the average team has 23 people focused on you know their analysts their software engineers their data engineers now you have biomechanical engineers. So you have these analysts and engineers and the, the average team has 23, which is amazing. And you have a range from, you know, around 10 to, you know, 40 something. Um, you look at other sports and, and the next highest is an average of five. And so, <laughs> yeah, so it's, and I, and I get it. Baseball is also a much larger scope sport, like lots of minor league teams, I think the most comparable thing is maybe like a, you know, a soccer team, right. With the academies and kind of the different levels of teams that they have. Um, so I get like an NBA team is much smaller roster, much smaller player pool, a two round draft, uh, one development team. Like it's just a very different scope. So I get that it should be smaller to some degree, but it's probably too small. So a lot of the sports, you know, when I I worked with a hockey team and found that hockey teams tend to be about 15 to 20 years behind where baseball is in this area. So I wanted to help them think through There, you know, the answer is not not every team is just going to invest the resources and hire 20 people. Um, so to me, it's how can I help them get to where they want to be, which is making better decisions by utilizing information kind of efficiently into the best, you know, help getting the most out of it without just hiring 20 people and then waiting however many years it takes to actually get the value for that. So, it's being creative. It's being resourceful. Um, it's helping them in some cases hire people because I've done a lot of that, um, or helping them, you know, create a talent pool to, to at least choose from or identify where places they can do it, what you know, on their budget, whatever that may be. You know, teams vary in that way. If there's new technologies and tools to help them kind of figure out what's right for them, rather than just let's you know just buy this thing and, you know without a plan. So it's really trying to help them think through know what they're actually going to try to do as a a sports team like what are we what, what are the benefits we're trying to get and then how can we actually get it rather than everyone's doing this let's just do what they're doing um you know so that was really the start of what i wanted to do but the more conversations i had i realized this could be a broader uh business because there's it might not be that's where the biggest concern is it might be you know, I've talked to one team where it was like, you know, our professional scouting, I feel like can be better. Um, I don't think we're getting the most the best looks or the most looks or it's not efficient. And so even just kind of like this operational type of analysis to figure out how can you get the most you know, the looks of the most important, relevant players to your organization, given where you are in your kind of win cycle, where you want to be. So you're prepared for your trade deadline and your offseason better. Um, things like that I've, I've helped people with as well.
0: So it's funny. I remember I had a conversation with you at a picnic table in Fort Myers. And I think it was, you know, maybe it was Dombrowski first or second year. And um, not first or second year, but you know, certainly somewhere in the Dombrowski era, and the and the the narrative was, oh, Dave Dombrowski, he didn't have a lot of analysts, and and I remember you saying like, like, we know, we we actually added some analysts um to the equation, whatever year that was, um, and I remember you also saying, I think you said, hey, listen, you know, are we at the where the Rays are? No. Are we where the Yankees are? No. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Wait, the Yankees? The team that Brian Cashman just said, they have basically no analysts? And you would put it, went on X, Twitter, whatever it is, and and sort of, or retweeted, I think, Eric Bolin, just saying, like like, this is the chart that Four Rings showed how many analysts you have. So I guess my question is, and there's a lot of questions I have off of stuff you said, but this is the thing that jumped to mind. Sure. When you heard Cashman talk the other day, what was, because... A big part of this, right, is is they want the analysts, but they don't want to be perceived as too analytical. And that, right. and, and when so, when Cashman talks the other day, you have a very unique perspective of this. Like, what was your takeaway? Was it like, hey, don't you don't have to be defensive about this, or was it what he was saying, which is we don't use analysts as much as people thought?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting because I live in New York, and so. I hear a lot of the narratives surrounding the Yankees, the Mets, their football teams, all, you know, all the teams around here. And there are, you know, they've had a, it's been a tough year for the New York fans and with sports teams um, so far. Um, but uh, so I'm aware of the public narrative around the Yankees this year and the frustration, which I think, you know, probably comes from winning a lot in your past, right? I, I thought saw that evolution in Boston where, you know I grew up a Red Sox fan you went from uh how are we going to blow this to you know why why aren't we winning if we're not winning a championship it's a failure and yeah, yeah. what
0: happened in 2006 come on let's go yeah right right like it's
1: <laughs> it's that which is fine as someone that worked for the team that's fine but it was amusing cuz i grew up there and i i knew what the mentality was and i i just blame the patriots for that for setting expectations way too high um but you know the yankees have set the bar really high and Brian cashman's been a big part of that and his record as a GM is outstanding. Um, Yeah, so to hear that, one, my first thought was, oh, did I get the numbers wrong? (laughs) Let me go back and check my chart or my information. So there's two things that can happen there, or a couple things that can happen is one, I may define things a little differently. So my point of doing those numbers isn't to say, okay, here's your media guide list that you call your analytics team, and that's the only people I'm counting. Analytics in baseball has become fully integrated with many organizations. So you may have people that have come from that background in player development, embedded and scouting, whatever it may be. I'm trying to capture all the people that you have that that's kind of their skill set and their background. Um, and so there's probably people that you know they do not. They have people that they call quantitative analysts there, um, and then they have a lot of other people that have the word analyst in their title. I do research the people before I include them. So there are some people that have research, have analysts in their title at different sports teams that I actually don't count towards that because I go and look at their background. It's like, yeah, this is someone that's a smart person who has feel for the game, who probably sees the game well, and so they're analyzing it much like almost like a TV analyst might be called an analyst, but they're not, you know, a statistical analyst or you know, doing uh, sophisticated things. Um, like techniques and mathematical techniques. And so I may not count that person. Whereas there may be someone that doesn't have analysts in their title that I am counting because I, I know their background or I've researched their background and found like, this is the path that they've been on. So this is kind of their core foundational skill set. So I'm going to keep counting them. I think the point I do that that is to kind of capture, um, you know, how many people they have, but also be comparative and kind of compare apples to apples. So. You know, that's part of it is he probably has a lower number than I do. I didn't look to see, you know, if you only looked at people with the title quantitative analyst, do they have the second smallest team in the ALES? I didn't look at that. I don't actually think, you know, I did look at if they are analysts and not software engineers, not biomechanical engineers. They still were second highest in all of baseball with about 24 people, I think. Um So I don't know where he was coming from with those numbers that you remember. New York also is one of the unique teams that they have people in New York and then they have people in Tampa and they have a substantial number of people in Tampa. So maybe he's only counting the New York people. I don't, I don't really know it's his operation. He knows way more about it than I do. Um, And so, you know, I just want this, this is how I account for it. And, you know, I know with Eric retweeting that and of course caused the stir of like, well, he's lying and, I doubt that was his intention. Um, Hey, I appreciated the emotion of his rant. Um, I get the frustration I can imagine, given how much success never having a losing season. And, uh, you know, I come from an organization, yeah, we won more championships in the same time period, but we also had a lot of last place finishes. We were kind of an odd roller coaster. Um, So I get it. I get his frustration. Brian Cashman's been in the game a long time. He can get away with maybe having a rant like that than other people so uh, I enjoyed it. It was very entertaining.
0: <laughs> well, well, I mean, it was entertaining, but it also it's it's this, and this is another big part of this. It's almost like a cliche. It's the I don't want to say defensiveness. I mean, being defensive about it, but yeah. but it, it, Zach, I mean, we we've gone through this a million times about. Yeah, this is why you have analysts. This is why you have information. Yeah. It's such this black and white issue and and I come back to I remember when Moneyball came out and you know everything became so black and white. Scouts right. versus stats, you know, and right. and it feels like we haven't gotten past that. And this is sort of like this is the latest example of it, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that was the part of it that kind of I was taken aback by. I was, you know, do we still need to do that? Do we still need to be defensive about that. I mean, most people, regardless of what their role is in a baseball operation, get it at this point that there's a lot more people. Front offices are bigger than they've ever been. These analytical teams are, are enormous. Um, you walk in, you don't know who anyone is. You know, there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, and But they get why you have analysts. Um, I do think what... Unfortunately, contributes to those kind of narratives or even straw man arguments that this is this this versus that that is because some teams and it's not the norm have have replaced or have gotten rid of you know their pro scouting department and or have gotten really lean in scouting and heavy in analytics and so you know anytime you start reducing the number of jobs in an area like I get why that narrative might be uh, a perceived threat. I think those teams that do that are missing out because, you know, I I get asked this a lot by people where they say, you know, with all the analytical investment that teams are making, it's getting really hard to get a competitive edge because everyone's got models for the draft and, you know, putting dollar values on players. Like, how do we actually make deals or, or, or draft, you know, the draft board? It seems like everyone's drafted off the same board these days. And to me, you know, I agree that everyone's getting pretty much the same quantitative information. And yes, there's some different analytical statistical modeling techniques that you can use that might be better than others, but that's not that big of a difference. But, you know, if you're talking about a draft model, for example, you're still getting a, a huge benefit from the scouting information. So like what you input into a model is really important. So being better at scouting than other teams is still valuable. So that. You know, I think teams obviously get that for amateur. I think in professional, it's true, especially of young players the minors. When you're in a position that you're trying to acquire young talent, um, you know your models are often only as good as your scouting information as well. So you need, you know, that's data too, right? That's qualitative data. So you need your quantitative and your qualitative to be really good. And you need to know, what you're talking about people. We're not talking about stocks. We're talking about human beings. So understanding the person that you're acquiring into your organization or trading away, you know, understanding how they, you know, are as, as people, their makeup, how they learn if they're young players, how they adapt, how they, their athleticism, they're kind of projecting physically on them, projecting mentally on them, all those different things are really important and can't be captured uh quantitatively most of the time.
0: Along those lines, you had a front row seat for the evolution of that, right? I mean, yeah. this is another thing we talk about is, fine, you have the information, but you have the human beings. How do you get the information, the, the human beings, and how do the human beings accept the information? Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, you know, those, not even the early days. I mean, even going through, you know, the teens with with the Red Sox and It's, hey, let's sit down, let's explain this, and it's still that way. And this seems to be sort of the great white whale when it comes to running teams, uh, having the right executives, having the right managers. What's your perspective on where that stands now and how that has evolved even in the last couple of years?
1: I think that has evolved quite a bit, although I would say that there's still a lot of opportunity to get better in that area. You know, when, when High and Bloom came to the Red Sox, you know, I told, I told, he asked me kind of where this, what's the current state of things analytically with the organization? And I said, you know, we're, we just started to add some more analysts in the last few years. We're starting to really invest in this area. We, we kind of, you know, in the early days, 20 years ago, we were a little ahead of the curve. Then we just kind of stagnated and kind of fell behind a little bit as other teams invested heavily in that space. And we had just started to kind of recommit and reinvest in that area. Um, and I said, but we hadn't yet really bubbled enough of that information and value up to the people, you know, that need it to make our organization better, whether that's coaches or decision makers in the draft. We were just starting that part of it. And so that's an evolution that takes some time. Right. It's. You know making sure everyone's on the same page it's you know you hear the word collaborative all the time it really truly is has to be a collaborative process and collaborative processes can be difficult to kind of iron out the kinks and so you know i told them i feel like we have some pretty good under the hood we have some good analytical tools that you know we probably only had for some of them for a couple years now because we just started to add more analysts So they'll get better over time as well as we continue to iterate and make them better with each new version. But they're better than what we had before we did this. Um, But where we're really behind is in implementing these things and integrating them into actually making players better, you know, having those conversations. We had some smart people uh, in uniform um, in PD or in the major league uh, clubhouse that could do that but it was still relatively early for them too it was still kind of a new thing the knowledge was evolving as well which is always a risk that your messaging becomes inconsistent as you continue to learn new things and maybe one thing you thought you learned as you continue to study it maybe wasn't as true as you thought and so you, you don't have to backtrack but you just have to adjust your messaging the i i would say i always say the the tampa bay rays are kind of the platinum standard in all of sports analytically, not because I think they have the best analysts and tools, although I'm sure they have great people and great tools, but because they've had a consistency of leadership going back to when Andrew Friedman got there in 2006 um, or took over, I should say as, as the head of the baseball ops, even when he left, they promoted internally. So their philosophies and their processes have been very consistent for a long time and so that's where their biggest advantage is. They're a well-oiled machine when it comes to finding insights within data and information and then actually acting on them in a positive way. They do that really well. It's an it's a tribute to the people that they have there, but also the fact that they've kind of worked out those kinks. They've evolved and they're ahead of the curve in that area and they can remain that way as new things come along
0: too. When You had mentioned... Um also on twitter slash x the uh and this goes with your conversations when when haim took over uh the managerial search mm-hmm. uh, when when you were hiring alex back yeah. um and uh and you had some interesting names and names that had, have come up recently uh james rousen and um uh carlos mendoza is that yeah, yeah. so there was yeah,
1: I mentioned Sam Fold as well I think. Sam Fold, three, yeah, three Sam hands, Fold, yeah.
0: that's right. Um so when you sat in on those what how was that different for you like cuz this is another part of like whereas did did that become a priority? I mean there's a lot of things when you have to prioritize when you're hiring a manager. But more so than ever did that when you had those interviews and you had those conversations did getting the vibe of whether they were going to be able to handle what you're talking about was that more of a priority than ever before?
1: I wouldn't say it was more of a priority. I think, you know, anytime, you know, even when we hired Alex Cora the first time, um, you know, I was involved in that process. And I'd say the way it changed from that to, you know, I'll leave aside kind of the, the Ron Renneke process because that was just so unique in the timing when it was. Um, so from Alex to then when we brought Alex back, but had interviewed 10 people before we made that decision, um, it wasn't that it was, any more important or less important in the past um and there's been many managerial processes in the past as well it was just different in how we assessed it like we could be more i I felt like we were more specific it was the first time that i felt really good about the process in terms of what questions we were asking and how much time we dedicated to that so i'd say you know i remember interviewing alex and it was in new york and because he was still in the postseason with the astros and you know, we met in a hotel room on, an, I think he had an off day and, um, you know, I had a whole script of a bunch of questions related to that. He did a great job of answering a lot of them before I even asked them. So that was helpful. Uh, but it was just much more conversational and less kind of, um, I don't want to say uh, rigid kind of implies a negative, um, thing, which is not what I mean, but it was just less structured and more, more conversational, even though we did have kind of a script we were working off of, I think there was more kind of picking and choosing. Whereas with the second time around with this group of 10 people, it was much more robust in terms of the process itself, in terms of the time that we asked of the candidates, especially those that got multiple interviews, which included those three guys. Um There was just a lot more time dedicated to, you know, meeting with sitting down with an analyst and kind of going through some very specific Scenarios and asking them very detailed questions about, you know, hey, we have this kind of model. Here's what's contained in the model for help defensive positioning. What are the things that you think, you know, you should be you should adapt off of this model in real time? What are some reasons you would adapt off of that? Um, and so guys give different answers. And it's interesting though to hear the way that they, they talk about it. And they all did a good job, even though they all answered it separately slightly differently, but. Um, those are, they were just much more specific and detailed questions than what I recall from the past.
0: That's really interesting that, the uh, the juxtapose the two Alex core interviews. <laughs> yeah. Well, we didn't interview
1: Alex as part of that. That was kind of, um, you know, the second time around it was Hiam basically said, let's set Alex aside for now. Cause that's, there's a lot of complicating factors there. And I don't, you know, we all, you know, the people that were there who had relationships with Alex, you know in the beginning of the process he said do you all want to bring alex back and we all said yes <laughs> uh, and hi i didn't have the relationship so understandably so he's like i want to go through this other process which you know is not a waste of time even if we end up with alex again because at least you get to know some people
0: and and right. you know, have a good process and learn a lot he'll learn a lot about that as well what, what jumped out with mendoza well, obviously he... he was really polished i
1: mean so I don't, of the 10, I don't know if we talked of the 10 people, maybe all of them had no experience as a major league manager. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that may not be exactly true, but when I remember, I think it was um, a lot of were bench coaches um, with him. So given that that pool was primarily people that never managed in the big leagues, there is no doubt in my mind that he was the most ready to do it and polished and that he would be able to um, step in and immediately kind of command a clubhouse, for lack of a better word. Um, and he's going to be organized. He just—he clearly been thinking about this for a while. He had managed in the minors. Um, I just—it just seemed like, wow, this guy's really polished. His ability to communicate, um, the relationships that he had with players and coaches were really strong. There was just a lot. He checked a lot of boxes. Uh, it was really impressive. I didn't know anything really about him other than you know the position he was in and the organization. And it's an organization I have a ton of respect for. So um I knew he would have had exposure uh to analytical information given their enormous analytics team. <laughs> but uh you know, so so that was that was a really I really enjoyed that process. And he did, you know, we did a zoom with him and then we brought him in person and he was great in, in both
0: of those. The um I want to go back to you know, this. This is talking about the merging of the front office and the manager's seat, um, or really the front office. And use at the beginning of this, we talked about the the interesting dynamic of Cy Chris Young in Texas, yeah. um, and and how he approached this. And I know that I've talked to people on the record, off the record, and one of the things they said they liked about him, especially heading into the deadline was sort of that player perspective. Like he was open-minded, but he had the player perspective of, hey, this guy's uh, this guy's numbers might be a little skewed or, or he might be dealing with this injury, but I know what that feels like or whatever it is. Um, so I, I do want to talk about, I'm going to get to your, the, the deadline deal you did with Bias. In celebration of
1: opening day, we've got a special episode of the Moth podcast for you. The theme is baseball and the surprising ways it connects people.
0: And and this latest deadline, which, like you said, you were s- somewhat involved in, like how did how did you view it? Did you is this one of these cases where? Because you've been around a lot of different people, so I, I don't know if you learned anything. But what was just sort of your takeaway from being around this deadline? Yeah, I really hope I learned something from it. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: yeah. So I think if you're if you have a chance, a real chance. I think the Red Sox have been in a precarious position for the last couple trade deadlines. So I think that's a tough spot to be in. Probably the toughest spot to be in a deadline when you're like, are we, should we buy, should we sell? But if it's, you know, you have a chance to win your division and win a championship. I think you owe it to your fans, your organization, your players, really everyone to give that your best shot without destroying your chances of having, um, a good team going forward as well, but you only get so many of these opportunities. So, you know, we, we know objectively that the odds of winning a championship are inherently low because it's a tournament and there's a lot, and there's even more teams in it. And so it's, it's really hard. Um, And baseball is a game that, you know, randomness can change things pretty quickly for you. So we know that to be true, but I still think it's important that you put your best foot forward. And obviously there's a limit to, to what you're willing to do uh like i said you don't want to destroy your your you know talent pipeline for the future but i also think sometimes what happens is people they, they almost get caught up in looking at their farm system in that moment without thinking that you know you're going to have a draft every year you're going to have you're going to always be bringing talent into the organization young talent which might be players you trade later it might be players that become future Um, pillars of your major league team i've always viewed it fairly aggressively um, of you you keep a fairly narrow scope of the players that you think are going to be those pillars of your future major league team you you everyone talks about sustainability and building a sustainable winner that should be the goal right like we want to we don't want to just win one year we want to win every year so i get that but i think what can happen sometimes is people cast too wide a net and saying like, well, we need to keep all these young players because they're our future and they're cost controlled. So that'll make it easier for us to justify doing bigger deals in free agency and balancing out kind of the the portfolio approach, which makes baseball really exciting to talk about it that way. Um so yeah, I think what I learned what you know from from Theo, from Dave Dombrowski in particular, was kind of, you know, you identify your it may only be three guys that you think these are going to be you know future boston red sox future uh texas rangers they're going to be key parts of our long-term success and you know you don't make them untouchable but realistically speaking they are because your price is going to be so high for them that no one will probably do a deal um and then kind of everyone else is on the table. Um, and you know what? You're going to, you're going to lose sometimes when you do that. You're going to trade away a guy that all of a sudden takes a big, big step forward. And yeah, you may look bad that you traded that guy in a rental deal, but more often than not the opposite happens, right? Where a guy, you know, who is not one of your top guys um, becomes a solid big leaguer, but no one that you couldn't replace. And again, you have opportunities to replace those guys. It's not your farm system at this moment, right before this trade deadline is our farm system going forward. And if you, if you don't think of it that way, I think you get um you, you end up kind of holding the bag a little bit. Um And I also think teams look that they, they can get, scared to make a move because nothing really one player doesn't move the needle in the sport like it does in basketball right like the sport's designed to limit the impact of an individual you can only start 20 percent of the games as a pitcher you can only get 11 of the plate appearances as a hitter like there's only so much impact that one player can have so it's really slippery and easy to kind of go down this path where you convince yourself like no moves really going to help us that much so i'm going to hold pat but i think back to your original point about talking about CY being a player, like that was one of the questions that I always ask players is how much of an impact does it have when you don't do anything in a clubhouse? And, you know, I think, his, you know, I'm not going to get into his answer because I you know, keep that to myself. But when I've asked people over the years, it tends to be the same kind of answer where it's like, well, it, it affects people differently, but yeah, it's a morale thing. It's, you know, we're, we're human beings and we're really competitive. And if we feel like, um, the front office doesn't believe in us by a kind of standing pat, then you know, it could affect some people to think it could affect people in a positive way. Which, you know, we're going to prove to them that we're we're better than they think, um, but it could also make them feel like, well, they don't seem to care, and why should I? Subconsciously, not consciously, they're all really competitive people, though. So, anyway, that's my long pointed answer.
0: No, no, it's it's. I, I think you hit the nail on the head, and. and... You know, from the outside, I would agree with everything you said. So you had mentioned the, on uh, Twitter the bias thing, um, mm-hmm. the the story behind the story. The floor is yours. I mean, it's, go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think with that, I totally understand when people look back. So the trade was about Javi Baez, we acquired um, Trevor Williams, and they also sent us cash, which was important at the time to keep us under the luxury tax, which was a mandate. Um and we gave up Pete Crow Armstrong, uh, who at the time, so if you look at it at the time, he was, I want to say publicly ranked as probably our fifth best prospect by the publications that do that. I'd say that was pretty consistent with how we viewed him internally. We liked the player. We loved the person, the work ethic. We loved the defense. I think there were we had questions about how the, the bat was going to evolve. Um, and, you know, we had a farm system that was pretty top heavy didn't have a lot of interest in kind of the middle tier which is usually where you want to trade from to make deals so you know we couldn't really get any traction there and we had a four game lead on the division at that point which is hard hard to remember because things kind of fell apart fairly quickly for the team uh the last couple months but yeah we still had a four game lead in the division it was pretty mediocre division at the time which is also hard to remember because the Braves have been so good since then then and they ended up playing really well uh, down the stretch. But I felt like a four game lead, we should, we have to be buyers. Um, and so I was having a lot of conversations about different players, uh, and especially with the Cubs, having a lot of dialogue about because they were selling a lot of players. So we talked a lot. Um, At one point, there was like, this probably was like a seven player deal we were talking about that would have filled several needs of uh, the team. One interesting dynamic that happened on deadline day. Was I got a bad report on the health of Jake Degrom? Um, so that didn't stop us. That wasn't. I didn't look at it as well. We got to give up on the season. And as you saw, you know, the Rangers lost Jake Degrom and ended up winning a World Series. So you don't give up on the season when something like that happens. You still have a four game lead. It wasn't clear that he was going to miss the rest of the season, but I knew there was some chance of that. Um, so it wasn't great. So I kind of pivoted a little bit from away from the kind of more of the all in type deals and thought, this is a player that fits us really well. And Doran had some health stuff. We'd had some um, challenges on the infield This he could play anywhere. Um, You know, the makeup was positive, especially if he's in a place where you're trying to compete, the people thought he'd thrive in the spotlight of New York, um, which he, he ended up doing. So we did the deal knowing, you know, anytime you're doing a rental deal, you kind of know it's a negative long term right like you're giving up a prospect even if at the time Crow armstrong wasn't he wasn't a top 100 prospect he was a good prospect and we liked him but you know at the time it was like i think some publications viewed it as fair um given what we were getting in return as fair as it can be i would have viewed it as slightly negative long term mm-hmm. um to Pete crow armstrong's credit and to the you know somewhat to the cubs player development credit he has, I would estimate, tripled his value since then and is now in some places listed as the 12th best prospect in baseball. That's prospect value. There's two different things, right? Like you've got to, what you contribute at the big league level and then what your kind of prospect value is, which all prospect value helps with until it's realized value is trade value. Um, So if you look back at that trade in hindsight, yeah, It was a bad value trade. But if you look at it as, you know, how did it affect the major league teams of both clubs? Well, that story hasn't been told yet for the Cubs. He still has to go and perform and he will get an opportunity because he's earned that on the Mets side, you know, Baez performed every bit as well as we could have ever hoped offensively, defensively base running. He brings so much to the table. He was outstanding performed. I think very similarly to Cespedes, did and run to the World Series in 2015. Uh, Williams was really good for us. He was especially good for the Mets when I wasn't there. The next year, which he had a year of control, and he's put up, he put up, you know, for two years a three something ERA uh, was really a, a key part of their depth situation there. So they got a lot out of those players that were there. And the story has yet to be told about what Pete's going to bring to the big league level. But yeah, when you look at it purely as a value, I know it looks like a really big negative trade. Um, I don't run away from that. Um, but I also, you know, I've had people tell me, what veteran executives say, you know, you need to focus on what you're getting more than what you're giving. I don't quite believe that. I'm not all in on that. I think you need to think about both. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's interesting to look. The Mets pivoted this year. They traded for a couple outfielders. One of them is a center fielder. So to my point earlier about you still add young talent down the road, you know, maybe Gilbert ends up being a better big leaguer. That You know, these things, or Acuna, who we traded with Texas, may move to the outfield. I don't know what they end up having doing with these players, but they acquired some really good prospects. And they both have prospect value if they want to make trades. And they may also be key parts
0: of their next, uh, you know, great team. I think it's a great, you know, and I heard, I've heard that too before. Focus on, you know, what you're getting. Yeah. Uh, we had a guy, a friend of mine, JP Richardi, you know, he said that's what he would tell Billy Bean. He's like, focus on what you're getting. And um, and I think to your point, as everything in baseball, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle when it comes right, to yeah. those sort of sayings. Um, you also said you you also a big pro or uh, advocate, proponent, um, supporter, David Stearns and and his hiring. Just in in a nutshell, like what what do you like about? Him?
1: So I didn't know David until recently. Um, you know, I said hello to him at industry meetings, but never had a real opportunity. Always heard great things about him as a leader, as someone to work for, uh, you know, the culture he creates. Obviously, he's a very intelligent guy. I've known that about him since going back to his um, commissioner's office days. Um but i didn't really know him we did talk before he ended up with the mets he's doing his due diligence he's making i'm sure he made a lot of calls and talked to a lot of people but he did reach out to me you know to to kind of learn about my perspective on my experience there um and so we talked for quite a while uh i got to know him better uh it was i really enjoyed the conversation he he's just there's just a lot of things like, again as i mentioned with cy like, i have a lot of alignment with him with david as well in terms of the kind of organization he wants to build the kind of culture he wants to have um how he wants people to work those types of things um so you know i agree with that approach that he wants to take so therefore i think he's really good because obviously i believe in that for a reason so and i like the person uh, the things that he talked about that are important to him as a leader as a boss um are, are kind of shared values as well so you know, there's no doubt he's a smart guy. Um, so obviously, the knowledge is important. You know, at that level, these guys all have knowledge, right? It's just kind of how do they actually execute? Um, and I think you know, the challenge for any time you go from a smaller market to a big market, the challenge is going to be, you know, how do you adapt to that? I remember hearing Andrew Friedman on a podcast say that he thinks it's much harder to go from small to big than big to small, and. I think that makes sense. I mean, my only small market experience has been consulting with the Pirates. um, And so I got some insight on on that. But I think it makes sense because when you go to a big market, you're not narrowing your focus, right? When you go, I remember when Jed Hoyer went to the Padres from the Red Sox and he said, in some ways it's easier because I can eliminate a whole pool of players that we cannot, you know, this is back when the Padres didn't spend like they spend now. Um, We can eliminate a whole group of players because we can't afford them so we can really drill down and narrow our focus not have to have as many balls up in the air as much uncertainty as as a big market team may have and that was kind of what andrew said too it's like i now i'm in on every market i I have to be on we're the dodgers that we can do it so we have to do it so it's just widens your scope and so i think you know that's going to be the challenge for anyone and david's case going from milwaukee to new york and obviously, with the resources that they have, with the mats, Um, yeah, there's there's no one that you can't acquire. Uh, it doesn't mean there's no limits, but you need to make it. I think it just makes a lot more. There's a lot more decisions that are on your plate, and you know, I'm confident that that's not going to be a a difficult transition for him.
0: And you got me fired up. I love
1: <laughs> it. do. It's
0: like this is, <laughs> this. is great. It's good stuff. I really appreciate it, man. I really appreciate it. It's it's uh, it's it's great to see you. It's great to see, you know, the stuff that you're doing at Four Ring Sports Solutions, and and um, and it's just good to talk about this stuff because I think that you offered insight, which I think is so unique, and 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 not only unique because of where you are now and where you've been, but to something you said early on, which is all these different people that you've talked to and dealt with and even when you were with the Red Sox I mean we we know that there was different iterations of right. uh, and then and and then you know the Mets and then you know you, four rings and in the organizations you're dealing with now even outside baseball again like this is it, if it baffles me how other m- media entities let's just say <laughs> Doesn't li- Don't listen to the the things that they cover. Like when you're talking, I'm thinking, oh man, like well, all this stuff is good stuff. It's stuff that should be our guide. So I don't. Right. Know,
1: you know. Yeah, yeah. No. I mean, as you can tell, I'm passionate about talking about stuff that's fun. It's interesting. I actually went through recently and counted how many former or current general managers or number ones, they're either presidents, CBOs, general managers, whatever the title is, but the number ones of a that were at one point of a baseball operation. I worked with 16 of them, mm-hmm. and that's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, going all the way back to Bill LaJoy, who was the GM of the Tigers in the 80s, um, and I've learned something from all of them. And so, you know, what's great about this opportunity now is I get to expand that into other sports and have really interesting, fun conversations with people that have had similar experiences we have some shared we, we kind of all know the life of working in sports operations it's the same in every sport Um, you know that the calendar is just it's different timing different details but it's the grind of it all and it's been good to have more balance in my life to kind of get out of the
0: day-to-day grind but i also enjoy helping people kind of navigate through that but you know what it all comes back to Bill of joy because <laughs> every time billy joy's name is brought up i remember theo um, in the uh, the cult classic book, Chasing Steinbrenner, saying when he's talking about hiring Bill of Joy, he said he has a strong desire to kick ass, and I'm like, <laughs> that is there's the common theme, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. and and that's I love Bill of Joy, um, he was great. I learned so much from him because I knew nothing about scouting when I started, and um, not to say I'm an expert on scouting now, but just the way he went about it. And then to see kind of in hindsight, like how right he was about a lot of things, even though, you know, just his experience, but he also adapted. I mean, this is a guy that was up there in years and we're, you know, asking scouts to do more with computers than they ever had in their jobs before. And he just adapted and, you know, kind of went with it and realized this is, you know, where the game's going, but he wanted to win and he was competitive. And I, I'm very grateful that I was around a lot of people that just, had that desire to, as you said, kick ass. And, um, you know, especially a lot of people from Boston being there when I first started and having, you know, that thing that was relatable to all Boston fans of like, we're ending this, we're winning this damn thing and we're not going to rest until we we do. And then even then we're not going to enjoy it. We're going to keep going and get to the next one. And and that was just what was really fun about growing up uh, in the Red Sox organization.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Really really good to see you, Zach.
1: Yeah, it was good to see you, Rob.